Welcome back to the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning Podcast for episode number 161. With two returning guests, Douglas Fisher and Nancy Fry from episode 77 from last August of 2020, where they talked about developing and delivering high quality distance learning for students that's become our most watched YouTube interview. And we also have the co-author of their new book that we're diving into today, How Learning Works, John Almerode. I'm Andrea Samadhi, author and educator from Toronto, Canada, now in Arizona. And like many of our listeners have been fascinated with learning and understanding the science behind high performance strategies in our schools, our sports and workplace environments. So this podcast was created to share ideas that we can all use, understand and implement immediately. My vision is to bring the experts to you, share their books, resources, and ideas to help you to implement their proven strategies, whether you're a teacher working in the classroom or online, a student or a parent working in the corporate space. Just to review our speakers for today, our returning guests, Doug and Nancy, are both teachers at Health Sciences High and Middle College. It's an award-winning open enrollment public school in the City Heights neighborhood of San Diego that they co-founded, and that was in 2007. For over two decades, they've dedicated their work to the knowledge and skills teachers and school leaders need to help attain their goals. Their shared interests include instructional design, curriculum development, and professional learning. Doug and Nancy have co-authored numerous articles and books on literacy and leadership, and I've included links to these books in the show notes, including this is Balanced Literacy, The Teacher Clarity Playbook, PLC Plus, All Learning is Social and Emotional, The Teacher Credibility and Collective Efficacy Playbook, and most recently, The Distance Learning Playbook with co-author John Hattie. Dr. John Almerode has worked with schools, classrooms, and teachers all over the world. John began his career teaching mathematics and science in Augusta County to a wide range of students. Since then, he's presented locally, nationally, and internationally on the application of the science of learning to the classroom, school, and home environments. He's worked with hundreds of school districts and thousands of teachers. In addition to his time in the pre-K to 12 schools and classrooms, he's an associate professor and executive director of teaching and learning in the College of Education at James Madison University. When you view some of the teacher resources and videos on the companion website, you'll meet John in the intro and purpose behind this new playbook. I'm excited to welcome back university professors Doug Fisher and Nancy Fry with John Almerode to dive deeper into their new book, How Learning Works, a playbook that unpacks the science of how students learn and translates that knowledge into promising principles or practices that can be implemented in the classroom or utilized by students on their own learning journey. Let's meet Douglas Fisher, Nancy Fry, and John Almerode and uncover the science behind how learning works. Welcome back, Douglas Fisher, Nancy Fry, and welcome John Almerode to the podcast. It's so good to see you again, especially after such a successful launch of your best-selling distance learning playbook last year. So good to meet you, John. Welcome back. Thank you. 
And thank you, Andrea, for having us. We're excited to be able to do this. I'm excited too. And when times are busy, what do we do? Well, we wake up at 6 a.m. Pacific, 9 Eastern, because we can get things done, right? That's right. Well, I was so excited to see this new playbook, How Learning Works, for so many reasons. But to start off with, something you say about your playbook is the reason why I tied neuroscience or an understanding to the brain to this podcast. And you say that this playbook is about how learning works, not by chance, but by design in the introduction. Can you explain what you had in mind when writing this book that unpacks the science of how we learn so that educators can design a learning experience in their classroom based on the research and principles you found to be the most effective? So I can start, um, and then Nancy and Doug, please jump in. But one of the things that we had talked about uh, for quite some time is the challenge with building the bridge behind brain research and classroom practice and what was helpful to teachers and then what could possibly be a distraction, although interesting and important, a distraction. Um, I, I don't know about Nancy and Doug, but I don't have an fMRI in my classroom. Um, and so <laughs> the challenge is um, how do we better tie together this humongous body of research on our cognitive architecture and how we learn into uh, translatable principles that we can use in our classroom. And so, to be quite honest, it was how do we drum down to the essential information that is applicable to our classrooms and move away from those studies that are interesting, uh, but if you sit in a dark room and open up your mouth, you're not going to see your brain line up. And so those studies aren't always immediately uh, applicable to our classrooms. And so the thought was, how do we translate this so that teachers can use it? And I'll go back to the, the opening that you offered, Andrea, about not by chance, but by design. And John Medina, who I know is another uh, favorite here on the podcast, reminds all of us that we're all brain workers. And so understanding that cognitive architecture, understanding what it is that occurs when learning happens, and then being able to bridge that, translate that into classroom practice that works and that we have evidence of working. That's really what's driven our work collectively. Love it. Love every second of it. That's why as soon as I saw the book, I thought we've got to get this, we've got to get this recorded because I'm actually working on a book that takes everything I'm learning from the podcast. So as, as you're talking, I'm thinking, well, yeah, not the things that are distracting. So what am I going to put in, in this third book that I'm doing? And so you're really inspiring me to get moving on this and, and submit this to Corwin. Awesome. Love it. Love it. And Douglas, do you have any thoughts on that? The science behind it? What interested you with this? <clears throat> Way back, uh, I think 2007, I was going to a lot of conferences and everyone was talking about the brain. I felt super guilty that I didn't know anything about the brain. So I signed up for a graduate neuroanatomy seminar. Oh. Went to class every Thursday night, 7 to 940 with all these doctoral students who had all this background knowledge and stuff. And I felt incompetent. I felt um, behind. And, and so I really wanted to know 
how does this work? What is, what is usable from research in neurosciences, in cognitive neurosciences, and fMRI studies? <coughs> Sorry, what is usable to a teacher? Because I was basing my work on behavior. And a theory was, you know, we're teaching their brains. But um, so that's way back then. I took that brain class and I was super excited to start that journey. Uh, what I love about that is that you talked about how you felt incompetent as you were learning this. And that's exactly how I felt when mm -hmm. an educator said, you have to put brain science in this and, and gave me how the brain learns by David Souza. Mm -hmm. And I opened it and I thought, is this too much for me to, to take on? Is this mm -hmm. really in my wheelhouse? And I felt so like when the neuroscience researcher that I hired to teach me this was explaining the three parts of the brain, I thought my, my eyes were like deer eyed. And mm -hmm. I'm thinking, am I going to get this? But mm -hmm. if I can get it, I know that everyone can get it and use it. And so I really understand what you're saying there, sitting in a classroom and feeling like, is this too much for me? But then you get it. And when you get it and explain it, that's why I think it's so exciting and why this book is is going to touch so many educators out there. This is this is good stuff. And so as I was reading the book, I love how there's an interactive component where you can click through each of the four sections and watch videos for further exploration. And there's so many resources and research articles and downloads that you can access. Can you just give an overview for the listener of the four parts of the book that we should all know of so we don't miss anything as we're going through? I'll invite John to do that. Um, this, this was his mastermind of how, how we could convey this huge body of knowledge in a way that um, people can understand. Before he does that, I would like to say, we created a playbook so that people could actually work inside of the book. It's not a traditional book where you read it cover to cover. It's modules that are a playbook where you're writing in it, you're doing exercises, and you're actually learning as you read and interact with this resource um and and i that's thank you for for that shout out doug but i have to tell you it's the three of us together um talking about how we make this come to life um, in a realistic way um, is what led to the division of the playbook into those sections for example, one of the things that has to be addressed, I think, and, and we certainly battled this in our conversations, is developing an idea of learning. What does it mean to learn something? And, and what is our concept of learning? Recognizing that context matters. I mean, the situation plays a huge role in what that looks like. So that first part, we really spent a lot of time unpacking what is learning? What does it mean to learn in your particular classroom, you being the reader? And then what are some myths and misconceptions that we have about learning that actually then become barriers or as uh, Chi refers to them, uh, pitfalls or chokeholds in our understanding of what's about to happen. And so then that's what propels us into the section on, well, what are some principles behind how we learn? But we can't just stop there. And so while we move through those promising principles, and I think we'll get to the promising part in just a second, uh, the promising principles, we can't stop there. We have to also provide support for our learners so that they take on uh, an understanding of their own learning and develop 
and build their capacity to apply their own strategies to their own experience. We've got to stop doing things to students and start teaching them the strategies that they can do on their own. And so that takes us into that third part. Um, and then Nancy spoke to this. At the end of the day, if we're not monitoring the impact that we had on our students, in other words, is learning actually happening, then the three previous sections were, if I can be direct, uh, a waste of time. If learning isn't moving forward, then something's up. And so that last section is what role does the assessment, um, the evaluation, uh, and not tests, I'm not talking tests here, but what do we do to make sure that we are having an impact on student learning and moving it forward? There's also an internal structure that uh, repeats throughout the book as well. And that really is um, uh, presenting what that principle is, what that learning strategy is, what's the science behind it, and so on. And then shifting that into uh, scenarios in, in the classroom. What does this look like? What does this sound like? And that third piece, which I think is really the pivotal part of this, is into your classroom. That's the interactive piece of the playbook itself. It's not only reading about the science. It's not only reading about what this looks like in other people's classrooms, but it's really taking that information and challenging the reader to be able to apply that within his or her own classroom as well to make that real. And the evidence overall is that when learners of any age have opportunities to do that, have opportunities to move into application, it is much more likely that they'll actually be able to do those things, put those practices into place. As I was reading the book, it's there's so much science and research behind it in all of the downloads and resources. And of course, I enjoy seeing well-known researchers that I've met along the way of this podcast journey. And one of them being Kent State's Dr. John Dunlosky. He came was on episode 37, and he covered with us improving student success with principles from cognitive neuroscience. And then I saw other videos in there that were powerful that we should all watch, Cognitive Principles of, of Effective Teaching. And I can't miss that we've already mentioned him, Dr. John Medina, whose research you referenced from his Brain Rule series. How did you choose the resources uh, to back up the science and how learning works? And were there other ones that I missed that would be important for me to also know? Ooh, that's a good question. Um, so we're, we're researching some in addition to our own uh, roles at the universities, but um, there's just a huge body of research out there on the science of learning. What we tried to do, um, and this is something that with, with intention, I don't want people to panic uh, if they go through the playbook and they see something cited from 1975. Because our initial reaction nowadays is to say 1975, why do you have something in there from 1975? One of the things the three of us tried to do is make sure that we picked the seminal work in a particular area. And so while there's lots of research on retrieval practice uh, or spaced practice, who actually introduced the idea and what was originally held the work forward in the field? We want to do that. Because one of the major components behind translation research, what this book is about, is 
back to the original context in which the study was done. Because what happens over time is the telephone game. Someone does a study, uh, for example, in the late 1800s. So the question then becomes, what do nonsense syllables from an individual white male have to do with social studies, science, language arts. And so one of the things that we wanted to really do is go back to those original works, those seminal works and say, here's the original context. And while the study is important, in order to go from that context to your context, there needs to be a process. So I'm taking a long time to answer this question. We went after the seminal work, the original works, or the works that actually moved it forward into classroom practice. And so that meant some of the things were dated 1975, some as recent as 2020. And to build on that and to add, we also uh, really looked closely at the work that John Hattie has done around visible learning in being able to identify what are those meta-analyses in particular that are really useful that help to cluster these major ideas together. So contrasting the seminal work and then looking more closely at the evidence that's been across a whole body of work around that topic has been really useful as well. It's helped to guide us about what's important and what it is that we want to make sure is accessible to students in the classroom. I think we have a good idea about what we can learn from your book, how learning works. In the introduction, we cover the purpose of the playbook. Part one covers what learning looks like in your classroom and different ways to think about learning. Part two looks at barriers to learning with promising principles, and you name some like motivation, attention, elaborate encoding, retrieval and practice, cognitive load, productive struggle, and feedback. Can you pick one of the promising principles and just talk about this? Like, what would people be learning about these principles? Dive a bit deeper into how we would master them. Well, I just opened to attention, and so I just decided to pick one randomly. So principle two, the promising principle two is attention. I think all of us know our lives would be better as teachers if our students paid attention. It would be awesome if their attention span were six hours long and things like that. It's just not the reality. And so what happens in the playbook is that we define this practice. So we spend some time on <clears throat> what do we mean by attention? What are the factors that go into paying attention? What are the practices that we can enact as teachers to improve or address the need for learners to pay attention? <clears throat> so we take it apart and say, what does the evidence say about attention? What are the barriers to students paying attention? What are the things we can do about that? <clears throat> and then we put together you know, a table of extracting some promising practices trying to distill it down to, here are things we can do right now for this promising practice that I just chose happens to be attention. And then there's practice work at the back. What can we do to ensure that we're understanding what the evidence says about each of these factors, in this case, attention. And then we end with a little check for understanding. Can you meet, <clears throat> do you understand what you read? Can you apply what you've read? And if not, <clears throat> some additional resources you can use.
I'll take on another one as well, and that's productive struggles. Certainly, there has been lots of attention around the idea that struggle is necessary for learning to occur. However, there can be a misinterpretation of that, that in some cases, productive struggle might be misunderstood as, oh, we just need to make the content harder. That's actually not what productive struggle is all about. And in that section, we talk about in particular the priming function of productive struggle, the being able to, with intention, pose a challenging uh, topic, question, problem to students, something that you anticipate they're not going to fully be able to complete. And then follow that up with instruction that comes immediately behind it that helps to fill in those gaps. I'd like to contrast that with unproductive struggle. When you have a student who's putting her head down on the table and weeping in frustration, we should never say, ah, I did it, productive struggle. We want to make sure that we're using it carefully, we're using it with intention, and we're using it at the right time. Uh, so I'm going to grab a hold of retrieval and practice. One of the reasons we are very intentional about referring to these as promising principles and then promising practices is that they're not guarantees. And so as Doug and Nancy have pointed out, moving into implementation requires that we as teachers make adaptations based on the local context of our classrooms. So when you get retrieval and practice, there are questions we have to ask ourselves. Um, is the retrieval in practice, does it have to be done in the classroom? Can it be done at home? Uh, do I have to be the one that provides the retrieval and practice opportunities? Uh, how much space is between them? Does this work for skills the same way that it works for concepts? These are all questions that have to be flushed out because the original research on retrieval and practice looked at a very specific context. And so as readers move through the modules, as PLCs move through the modules, um, grade level teams, content teams, however you choose to engage, the modules designed to not just look at retrieval and practice and the idea that it helps and that research says it helps, but then what are the specific adaptations you have to make so that it matches the local context of your classroom? And at the same time, what mechanisms are in place for you to monitor to ensure that learning is happening as a result of retrieval and practice? Um, that's really the, the strength, I think, uh, of this playbook. We kept in mind that Every classroom, while they're all learners, every classroom has a different context. And so retrieval and practice is going to look different in my class than it does in Nancy's and then it does in Doug's class. And how do we plan that out and be methodical in our planning as teachers when diving into that work? Got it. And for part three, I think this section is exactly what educators are looking for because it explicitly teaches skills to students to help them self-regulate and master these skills long after they've left the classroom. And you, you list skills like explicit strategy instruction, goal setting, integrating prior knowledge, summarizing mapping, self-testing, and elaborate interrogation. Can you pick one topic and expand on why it's so important? 
I am so excited uh, about the work around summarizing. You know, I'm a literacy person. So the idea of summarization really just resonates with me. And one of the exercises that is in there is in looking at some of that seminal research that John referred to earlier uh, around summarization and uh, challenging the reader to identify five different possibilities around what might be the most effective way to be able to summarize. And they include things like, should it be that after each page you write three lines of text that summarize the most important points? Or do you write down verbatim an important sentence that came from there? And we all know as teachers how important summarizing is but we often don't know the science behind what it is that constitutes good summarizing. It is not just simply writing down some things. This idea in particular of writing down those key ideas in one's own words, really, really important. And here's where we see this playing out uh, as one example with Cornell note-taking, which is a a great form of note-taking. There is supposed to be a section that is reserved for the student to be able to summarize the notes that are on that page. In practice, that often gets skipped. However, understanding that summarization helps to lock in those major ideas and that it is well worth your time, your instructional time to make sure that you are carving out regular opportunities for students to be able to summarize those main points. That's going to be able to seal in that learning that you're hoping that students have. I'm going to single out Doug for a second. I was in the crowd uh, at one of his presentations and he was walking through the idea of jigsaw. And, uh, and, and Doug, I'm going to kick it over to you because I think this is this illustrates the point and follows Nancy's point perfectly that we often leave out that last step of the jigsaw. And I remember it so distinctly because you mentioned it was a pet peeve of yours and it just we leave this out. And then I looked at my own teaching and thought, yeah, I just skip over that part because the bell's going to ring. Uh, we've run out of time. Something's taken too long. Um, but that's a prime example of where we often skip over the most valuable part of the learning strategy for the sake of the instructional strategy. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> awesome. So yeah, the, that three-part jigsaw model that I was doing incorrectly, I didn't know. And that's to your earlier point, John, we don't ever go back. We rarely go back and look at the original work. <clears throat> it gets popularized. It becomes common, you know, common practice or whatever, even if it's watered down and done wrong. When students have that third phase where they return back to their expert group and they actually move into metacognition and thinking and and comparing and contrasting and saying, oh, our section of the text was this, but these other groups had this. How does it relate? How does it fit? How does it compare? That's where some of the deepest learning is occurring, but it gets skipped all the time. It's divide and conquer and we call it a jigsaw or it's go to your expert group, talk about it and then go share with other people and you're finished. That's not where that deep learning is occurring. Yeah, and I think that's the strength of that section on learning strategies is how do we make sure we don't overlook that part of it? Um, And I'll say it again, we cannot sacrifice 
the learning strategy for the sake of the instructional strategy. And I think that is a a major part of this work. And and one of the things that really pushes the conversation forward, stop doing things just to our learners, but help them build the capacity so they can do it on their own when we're not in the classroom with them. And so moving through to the final part of the playbook, it's generating and gathering evidence. Can you explain the goals so that this playbook uncovers what worked well, what needs more work, and best next steps to follow? How do you use this part of the book? I call it the temperature check. Um, it's a shame that, that books are linear in their design because ideally the, the evaluating our impact component should be something we are constantly doing. You kind of step out and find out as teachers, you try something, you have your learners engage in something and you're constantly monitoring to see if it is having an impact on their learning progression. And so that last part is to emphasize the idea that we should be evidence gatherers um, and evidence generators as teachers. In fact, I would probably reverse some art primary role is to generate evidence through our teaching and learning strategies and then gather that evidence and do something with it, interpret it and decide where to go next. So that last module is really about refocusing our role as evidence generators, evidence gatherers, and then interpreting that to see where we go next in our teaching and where they would go next in their learning. Um, It should be sprinkled throughout, even though it is the last module of the playbook. And our intention around that last module in particular is to help professional learning communities make this actionable. Uh, We talk about uh, PLCs at the beginning of the book as well. How is it that as a professional learning community, we gather up that evidence, we look at what it is that's effective. And some of the other work that Doug and John and myself have done has been around professional learning communities. And we tie these modules specifically to those five questions that we challenge professional learning communities to be able to know, understand, and to move through. Where are we now? Where are we going? What's the kind of learning that will move us forward? Who's benefited? Who hasn't benefited from all of that? And looking closely at what our evidence is all along the way uh, is an essential part of this. As John said, we would really be failing in what it is that we want to accomplish with this work if in fact we don't provide teams of teachers with the ability, with the tools to be able to measure their impact and to make decisions about what is working with their students. So just to think about our final thoughts, we've really done a good job, I think, summarizing this new playbook that I think is brilliant and and it's timely and important. Have I missed anything in my questions to you? You know, we've done the intro, we've looked at the part one, um, covering what learning looks like in your classroom. We've gone over some of the promising principles. And then we've looked at the powerful part, I think, with the summarizing and mapping and making sure we put these processes into practice. But what is there anything that we haven't covered that's important to mention? 
For me, um, this is a bit of a soapbox, um, and, and I don't mean to minimize it, but certainly acknowledge the fact that this is a soapbox of mine, and that is the, the deprofessionalization of teaching that has often happened uh, in our culture and society. This actually puts the emphasis back on teachers as professional decision makers. Uh, it's not a, there's no standard approach. There's no one way. Um, there are promising principles and promising practices. But at the end of the day, as the teacher, as the expert and professional in the room, we have to make intentional, purposeful and deliberate decisions about how to implement it and then monitor that work. And so in many ways for us, uh, this playbook really put that emphasis on you have to make some decisions based on these principles, but then here are some mechanisms to monitor and watch to see what happens. And oh, by the way, if we try something on Tuesday and then we look at the evidence and it suggests it didn't have an impact, then we're going to shift what we're going to do on Wednesday. It doesn't make us bad people. It doesn't make us bad teachers. It just means we used evidence to make a decision about where to go next. And so on the contrary, it actually makes us better teachers and, and better individuals because we're responding to the needs of our students, not to a standardized script or boxed approach. This is really the basis behind the place that we start with, not by chance, but by design. That's a good ending. Doug, Nancy, John, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast to share this new playbook that I see there's such immense value with, and I know that educators listening will agree. Thank you so much for spending your time with me today, bright and early on a Friday morning. Thank you so much, all of you. Thank you. Thank you, Andrea. I just want to close by saying to access the book, I put all the links in the show notes. There's a 20% discount code for all books. If you want to go to corwin.com, it's pod 20. And to contact Nancy Fry and Doug Fisher, you can go to their website, fisherandfry.com. And you can find Nancy on Twitter, Nancy Fry, and Douglas is dfisher, S-D-S-U. And John, I found you on Twitter, JT Almarod, and your website is johnalmarod.com. Thanks for teaching me how learning works. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Andrea. Thank you. If you're enjoying the Neuroscience Meets Social and Emotional Learning podcast, please don't forget to subscribe so you'll stay up to date with our new episode. While you're there, please feel free to give us a review or a five-star rating as it helps others find us. For more information on our programs, books, and tools for schools and the workplace, visit us at www.achieveit360.com.